Welcome to the Bowl Season Stories Podcast, Season 2, Episode 8. I'm Nick Carparelli, the Executive Director of Bowl Season. And today we are joined by sports and fitness influencer and entrepreneur Callie Bundy, former University of Utah and Atlanta Falcon running back Jamal Anderson, and AutoZone Liberty Bowl Executive Director Steve Earhart. Today's show is brought to you by Sport Radar, a reimagining immersive experience for sports fans and betters. Our first guest, she kind of has a lot of titles. She's a mom, probably the most important one for sure, an athlete, a model, a social media influencer, an entrepreneur, but she likes to describe herself as a professional American. I love that. Please welcome to the show, Callie Bundy. Callie, thanks for joining us. Hey, Nick, how's it going? Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it doesn't get more American than college football and bowl games. So you being a professional American, we, we have a lot in common already. You played three sports in high school, soccer, uh-huh. basketball, and softball, went on to play division one softball. Uh, so you know what it's like to be a member of a team. So a lot of, a lot of the former college football players we talked to on this show, they, they typically played their final football game of their life in a bowl game. So you know, you know what it's like, that special uniqueness of playing, playing your last game. What was it like for you to be a college athlete and how special was it to be uh, a part of a team and have that experience? Yeah, I always say being an athlete is a privilege. Like it's it's a privilege to play on any team on any level. It's earned, right? There's nothing given in sports. You have to literally show up every day. Nothing matters about what you did yesterday. So, I think that's I I love I love learning. I love applying. I love like getting better. So to me, it was the perfect fit. And obviously I love playing sports, but yeah, it's all I ever wanted to do. Like in in my third grade journal, I remember like first page, first paragraph, me and my mom were cleaning up my room once and we found it. And I literally, literally wrote, I like sports, eating and sleeping. And in my spare time, I do my homework. So all I ever wanted to do was play sports. I, I like those things too. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> that's yeah. pretty good. I wish that's all we could ever do is those three things. Yes. And well, I, I very clearly remember speaking about like the last game you play in as a bowl game. I like vividly remember the last game I ever played in and remember being like, what do I do now? Was it emotional? <laughs> Was it emotional for you? Yeah. And I'm not even an emotional person. Um, with like, you know, I'm not, I don't get, but it was like, it's just all I wanted to do, you know? So it was like, what, what do I do now? How do I fill that void? Well, let's talk about, you know, at at a young age, what was your inspiration for sports when you were young? I know your father played football at UConn who actually had a big win this weekend. They have three wins already. I think they've, they, they didn't exceed three wins in any of the last few seasons. So they're halfway to go into a bowl game. So that would be quite a story. Yeah. The good news is yeah. Their expectations are so low that anything they do this season is, is a win all around, right? For sure. For sure. They, and they definitely have three more games that are winnable. So if they get to six and go to a bowl game, we'll, we'll have to get you there for sure. But yeah, but tell us about what, what developed your passion for sports as a kid. I just liked it. Uh, my parents introduced us to all kinds of sports, all kinds of things. We kind of Grew up in the woods, um, a lot of like hunting, fishing, playing sports. So we were introduced to all kinds of things. And they never, like the way they said, they never forced us to do anything, right? If we expressed an interest in wanting to do more of something, then they would find a way to help us do more of something. And 
I just liked it. Like it was just something about it. I liked hitting I liked kicking. I liked throwing and I was, I was good at it. So I just wanted, I wanted to do more of it. It was really that simple. Then that passion led to a love of fitness. Tell us how you transitioned into becoming a fitness competitor. Yeah, that, that actually, I mean, training is always a part of sports, right? So it was like, I always trained to be better at performing a sport. So to me, it always was like innate. It was kind of like who I was, right? It was like, I was almost always doing two a days. Um, and then, so when sports ended, it was like, what am I going to do now? And, you know, I wasn't going to go like run marathons. I wasn't gonna like do things like that. I was, so I was like, you know what? I've always wanted to kind of figure out this, like I've seen people that had done bodybuilding shows, knew a little bit about it, but it was really like the training I was used to, but the actual stage day was the complete opposite of anything I had ever done in my life. And I actually absolutely hated it. So that's what made me want to do more of it. But, but I started doing it to kind of like find the next thing and I'd always trained. So I love training, but I liked training for a purpose. So competing on a stage and having goals, like that's what filled the purpose. I'm going to ask you what you say is everyone's favorite question to ask your football trick shots have gotten quite a lot of traction on the internet and on social media. What was the origin that got you started in attempting these and, and eventually becoming very good at them? Yeah. Again, also just goes back to, I just have always liked throwing a football. Like it's everyone's always like, but why? And I'm like, I just like the way it feels coming out of my hand. That's it. It's really that simple. I always, so in, in college, I played softball. So we had, of course, a fall ball season and then our regular season. So we didn't have too much time to do anything else. But when fall ball ended, we had maybe a month and I had a bunch of friends. We all played on different sports teams. So we started playing like pickup football games. And it was pretty funny. Like, you know, one of my friends is like all American, you know, field hockey goalie. And she's like, I'm going to be the hutter. And I'm like, yo, it's actually not called the Hutter, but that's amazing. So like we were just doing like making up names and doing things. And I'm like, hey, look, I can kind of throw a football. And it was like ever since then, I had a football with me and I would just bring it to the beach. I would bring it when I traveled. I, would, I was like always trying to find someone to throw a football with me. I just absolutely love throwing footballs. And obviously it wasn't an option for me to play. Right. It wasn't a thing. It didn't exist. It's the one sport I always wanted to play. Um, so it was something I've always done, but I was done with my fitness competitions and they were really starting to like wear on my soul because there's no sports involved. Right. It's, it's a, I always played a very like objective sport, right. Where you could like muscle your way to a win and change a game and emotion and momentum and all these things that you train and practice for to a very subjective thing where you just like spun around a stage and heels. And they're like, no, your tan's off. You're out of here. You know? And you're like, I was just like, I'm not going to do this anymore. So I was doing a food giveaway for this company. And I really just wanted to go play sports, but all my friends were like, you know, had grownups and they're like real jobs. And, you know, it was like a 11 AM on Tuesday. And because I have like a different career, you know, I'm able, I have a different schedule. So I couldn't find anyone to throw footballs with me. So I took the food box that this, that it got shipped in and I went out to this field and I took a football and I was like, I don't know, I know this giveaway and I threw a football in the box 
purely because I wanted to go throw footballs. And so I posted it and everyone was like, this is fake. You can't do that. You know, it didn't even go in the box because it had bounced like into the box and then out of it. Right. And the reaction was so strong to it. I was like, what do you mean? I can't like, I've done this for a long time. It's not like something new. So again, I just started doing more of them. The more people reacted negatively to them. Well, you're obviously having a lot of fun with it. The biggest takeaway from what you just said is we should all try to never grow up and get a real job. That, that, would, that would be amazing. You, your viral videos have, have then led to interviews on ESPN. You're on SportsCenter, Barstool, Bleacher Report, the Olympic Channel. You were a contestant on Go Big on TBS. Uh, you even threw footballs with Rob Gronkowski for a promotion. Did you ever think that doing these trick shot videos would lead to national interviews and social media popularity? No, never. <laughs> like if I, I so that wasn't your that it. wasn't your goal. No, no. And that's the thing, like everything I've always done in my life has been purely because I enjoy doing it. That's it. It's just that simple. So I started doing it because I liked it. Um, but it's funny, like me and my brother always joke about that because we're like, I don't get what people like. So, you know, like, cause we just grew up doing that. Right. Like, but it was even funny. Like, you know, I taught myself how to throw football. Like my dad didn't know I threw football. I don't think my brother really knew not until like, I was like, Hey dad, by the way, I'm going to be on sports center (laughs) throwing footballs, you know, tomorrow night, you might want to check it out. And he's like, wait, what? And so it's just funny. I just, I just started doing it because I liked it. And I think that's what people liked about it is you could really feel like that. I just enjoy it. And that's what people like take away from it. But I I, again, remember very clearly one day I was in Yankee stadium and we were doing trick shots for their pinstripe bowl that they were like, they were going to be like teasers to promote the upcoming game. And it was like, I don't know, December, something, and it's cold, but not too cold. It wasn't snowing. Right. It was like, perfect because if it was too cold we wouldn't have been able to be there and you know whole yankee stadium shut down and it's just me in there with the camera crew you know throwing footballs around yankee stadium and i'm like i never in a million years would have guessed that me being in like elementary school playgrounds throwing footballs at cardboard boxes would have translated into me being in yankee stadium throwing footballs for the pinstripe bowl that's, that is so much fun. Yeah. I mean, your, your, your passion for this is obvious and how can it not be uh, now a little bit on a negative, but it's, it's a positive story in a way you were injured recently, but you made a rather quick recovery from labrum surgery. We were talking about that the other day about how much we learn about our bodies as we get older. Notice I didn't say old, older uh, with age come comes wisdom, I guess. So we're all trying to keep our bodies healthy and feeling good as we get older. Tell our listeners what you learned uh, recovering from your recent injury. Well, first of all, I think your mentality, and I told you this when we talked about it, is wrong. I don't think it gets harder as you get older. And I think that's a mentality that people like set them up for. Like you, you you are your thoughts, right? Like that sets up a mentality. So it's always the same and injury always exists. It really doesn't matter. Like it's just across the board. Right. And especially for throwing athletes. So I don't like, it's, I don't think that has anything to do with the equation. Um, I think it's an excuse actually that people use to not do the work and it's, um, it's a bad 
culture that people have set up, I think, I feel. Well, I don't disagree so, with you on that, to be honest with you. But Yes, yes. You can but, disagree with me all you want. But what I know no. is what I have done and what, what's capable. Like even like, yeah. So I tore, I tore my labrum actually probably, God, now like had to be like four years ago. And I didn't know it. I was actually just throwing a big stick to my dog's sidearm. And I was like, oh man, that didn't feel good. And it was weird. It was a weird pain. Like it actually hurt more when I threw light things. Like if I threw like a little golf ball to my dog or like a light wiffle ball or things like that, it didn't hurt when I threw a football. But then I got pregnant with my son. So I wasn't really throwing things. And it wasn't until TBS called and I went on the Go Big show and I was on there and I was like, man, something is not right. Like I couldn't hit the broad side of a barn. And I thought maybe it was because I was weak, all these things, you know, because of the pregnancy. I was like, you know, I went on there. I was 11 months postpartum. Um, so I really hadn't been doing anything but growing and raising a human. So then I took a few months to train and then I finally went and got the MRI. And they were like, yeah, it's torn in three spots. Um, so in the front, two in the back. And then I had um, the tear in the front was letting fluid get into the capsule. So I had a capsule issue. So yeah, now I'm a little over a year post-surgery from that. And they told me I wouldn't even like throw till over a year. I started throwing probably like six months um, post-op. And it's been like incredible. And my like, they're surprised by my recovery. And it's all because I did things differently and didn't really do a lot of what was recommended. I did it based on like how I know my body responds and kind of questioning everything. Um, you created a product called Strong Sauce Brands. Now, I'm a big pasta guy. I'm Italian. Very particular about my sauce. I haven't tried it yet. But tell us what Strong Sauce Brands is and how it came about. You're my favorite challenge when I meet people in, <laughs> in person and they tell me, oh, oh you know, I, I make my own sauce. And I'm like, great, step on up. I've got something for you. So, yes. So about um, three years ago, I actually, you know, being a sports and fitness model, right? Obviously, food is a big piece of what I do. I actually hate cooking. Like it's I, the last thing I want to do is be spending time in the kitchen. I just want to eat good food fast and be done with it. So I had the idea because one of the staple meals I would make was quinoa pasta, ground beef and pasta sauce. And I was like, what if the protein was already in the pasta sauce and then you could just make, you know, your pasta sauce and your quinoa pasta or your chickpea pasta, your protein pasta, whatever. And 10 minutes, boom, like dinner's done. So then we went live. We, we created the company about a year ago. We went live about seven months ago. And yes, it's been amazing. So it's strong sauce. It's the first ever high protein pasta sauce. Excellent. Well, I can't wait to try it. I, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you when I do. I'm going to tell you if I like it or not. I don't, if, if somebody doesn't have the ability to be honest with me. I'm not interested in the conversation. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. Well, Callie, I've taken up a, a, enough of your time. Thanks so much for joining us. You're, you're a very interesting person. You're a lot of fun to talk to. Uh, I'm going to try strong sauce and I will let you know how it goes, but uh, th thanks so much for joining us. Of course. Thanks, Nick.
We're going to take a short break and be right back with former University of Utah running back Jamal Anderson. Stay tuned. Vapor Apparel has all your game day essentials, from eco-friendly lightweight sun protection shirts and hoodies to cozy joggers and Sherpa fleece pullovers. Vapor has the layers you need to get outside and stay out longer. Plus, as Bowl Season's official apparel sponsor, they're creating limited edition shirts for bowl-bound teams made with 100% reprieve fiber from recycled water bottles. Want to celebrate your team's bowl bid with official bowl-bound gear? Get yours and explore more at bowlseason.com. Our next guest was selected by the Atlanta Falcons in the 1994 NFL Draft after an outstanding career at the University of Utah. He quickly established himself as one of the game's best running backs while attracting fans with one of the NFL's most well-known touchdown dances. We'll talk about that one. He earned a Pro Bowl selection in 1998, leading the NFC in rushing and helping the Falcons to an appearance in Super Bowl 33. We now welcome to the show Jamal Anderson. Jamal, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, man. Happy to be on. Happy to be on. Love college football. Love talking about football. Happy awesome. To be here. Awesome. Well, I then I'm sure you follow your Utah Utes pretty closely. Last yes. season's Rose Bowl appearance was a big moment for the school. It's alumni, it's yes. fans. It came up just a bit short, uh, and yeah. I think it was the best game of last year's bowl season. Tell us what that trip trip to Pasadena meant to everyone affiliated with Utah. You know, it meant uh, it meant so much. We understood coming into the conference uh, when we first got into the Pac-12 that uh, you know we were immediately stepping up in competition, and that we had to do a lot of work in order to put ourselves in a position to consistently compete for championships. And I feel like Kyle Whittingham and his staff and, uh, you know, from Chris Hill and to our our current AD, Mark Harlan, everybody's been doing a tremendous amount of work to make sure that the school, uh, you know, was competitive each and every year, got great recruits, the scholastics, the scholarship, uh, the the graduation rate was fantastic. So, you know, we we got close a couple of times. You know, we were there and we, we kept winning the South. And we had a great team led by Zach Moss and, uh, and a fantastic quarterback who's balling right now um, in, down in the, the Ravens. They led us to, to a couple of opportunities, and we just kept coming up short. So finally to beat Oregon and then to see them again and dominate them in the Pac-12 championship was tremendous. Uh, it was a fantastic finish to the season. Listen, I mean, we had 60,000 people there. If anybody who watched that game saw how well we traveled, and how tremendously excited our fan base was to finally get to the Rose Bowl because it was a goal of ours for a number of years. So we were very, very happy. I was there. I was there last weekend also, but I was there at the Rose Bowl. And, yeah, we came up short. Well, what a tremendous game and a fantastic season for the team. And, you know, it's interesting because, as I said, I was you know there last week. And UCLA has got a tre- tremendous team. I mean, DTR is and he's putting it all together this year, and he's been a tremendously talented player for a number of years. But Utah's back in the same situation again, almost mirrors where they were last year. And although I'm not going to make, they, you know, we play USC this weekend, I'm not going to make that game. Uh, but I was there last year. So here we go again in a situation where they you know, lost a couple of games, but they're, in a, they're still in the top 25. And they play against a very talented USC team this weekend. So we'll see what happens. Well, you couldn't be more right. I, I've, I've known Coach Whittingham for a while. He took over the program yeah. 17 years ago. It's hard to believe. 17 years ago. They've been yeah. in great hands and, and really just yeah. top to bottom from, from the administration to the coaching staff. I mean, it's really a really a testament to what um, everybody being on the same page can, can do to yes. help build a program, I think. 
But take us, absolutely. So, but take us back 30 years to your college days. What was it like yeah. back then when you were part of building a program uh, under coach yeah. Ron McBride? Exactly. You know, it's funny. You know who our defensive coordinator was Fred Whittingham. Wow. Fred Whittingham, Kyle's father was our defensive coordinator. And it's literally one of the reasons why, I mean, obviously uh, my relationship with the program is, is, has been close for a number of years, but why it's so close is because I've known Kyle for all this entire time, you know, from his time, you know, leaving BYU and coming over to be an assistant with Utah, like he's been around this entire time that I've been around. So it's great. But, um, you know, when I first chose Utah, uh, I was getting recruited by a bunch of schools, and I remember um, Utah was the most serious about my education, quite frankly. Uh, you know, and I'm not saying that there were not other schools who, you know, put me in a situation or tried to challenge me on my recruiting trip, but I, it did make an impression upon me that if I wanted to, what, what was I going to do beyond football? And that's what really impressed me about Utah and the recruiting class that I took my trip with. I mean, it was like outstanding players up and down. And I was surprised because I'm going to be honest with you. I originally was going on a recruiting trip to Utah to go skiing. I was going with my friends. I had a pack with a group of guys who I kind of grew up with out here. We made it to that level. We promised we'd all take trips together. And it was like four or five of them. Oh, we're going to Utah. And I was like, yeah, we're going to Utah. And I was like, okay. And I, like, they had started coming around. I was like, all right. I saw them a little bit. But I wasn't really, really, really seriously considering going to university until I went on my trip and we had such a tremendous, we had such a good time and the bond of all the players. I really loved Mac. My parents love Mac. And I remember my dad saying to me, you've got all these big schools, but are you a good enough player where you could turn a program around? You think you're that good? You talk a lot. You think you're good enough to help turn a program around? And I was like, watch, you know, and that class that came in with me when we left Utah, uh, you know, those guys a year after me, we, we were in the top 10 and we all came at the same time. So we, we take a tremendous amount of pride in, uh, you know, being the first team in you know, 30 years to go to back. We, we went to back to back to back bowl games. And again, like I said, my class, we finished in the top 10. So we, you know, we have always been of the, uh, the, the presence and the point in our minds that, hey, man, this this could be this could be a little powerhouse here, you know. We felt like the, the attitude and the way that we play and the type of recruits we get and the type of guys who the, the energy and the family atmosphere there. We really, I mean, I felt for a number of years, that's why I've been, uh, you know, tried to be such an ambassador for the program because I feel like it's a great place to play. It's also a great place to go to school. And there's other outstanding schools, of course. But I mean, you know, um, I think that Utah's, you know, really done a tremendous job. Well, you mentioned there. Utah's bowl history prior to you coming there. It was actually 28 years, 28 uh, year bowl drought uh, before right. you got there. Um, and, and the school had only been to four bowl games total at that point. But right. then in 1992, you went to the first of your two bowl games, the copper right. bowl in Tucson, Arizona against Drew Bledsoe in Washington state. It's also important right. to note that 30 years ago, there was half as many bowl games as there are now. So it was really, really special to go to a right. bowl game. No, um, it was. So do you remember the excitement that that generated and the satisfaction absolutely. you and your team felt? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, because, um, like I said, we, there had been such a tremendous bond and then, you know, Drew Bledsoe was on fire, you know, and everybody expected him to be one of the top picks in the NFL draft. You know, Washington state was a, a very talented football team and 
they did a lot of damage in the pack and in, in, in the pack ten as it was at the time. And so uh, we were excited about it. And again, you know, playing against Bledsoe and all the hype for him, and then going to Tucson, which was a, I mean, that was a tremendous host city. I mean, it was like I don't know. You know, I know that they they get a lot of stuff here and there, but like you said, there's so many bowls now. It was such a big deal then. It's like, you know, you had these dinners every night and being there. I, I think it was a it was a, a unbelievable experience. And then, you know, we followed it up the next year at the Freedom Bowl, and so I essentially got to play my last college football game here, you know, in LA at home, in front of my family, and that was, you know, against USC, where everybody thought I was going to go. So that was crazy. Well, yeah, you mentioned that second bowl game. So you think about the games, you know, the, the Copper Bowl, Drew Bledsoe ends up being on the number one overall pick. 1993, the Freedom Bowl, you're playing USC in that historic program. And and right. you mentioned that being your final collegiate game. Now, you were, you were fortunate to go on and play in the NFL, you know, for a lot of your friends right. and teammates. I mean, I, I think this gets lost on a lot of people. Their bowl game their senior year is the last football game they ever play in their life, period. You know, know. do you ever think about that? How important is that to those guys? Yeah. You know, it's crazy. I've never, great question. And I've said this to people sometimes um, when those kind of conversations have come up. um, And it is a great question. I remember senior day, like our last home game in Utah, when your parents come out and walk you on the field and, you know, guys were like, there were some guys who were like balling because they knew that was, that was it. You know, me, I was like, I thought it was, I mean, it was awesome. And I was so grateful for my parents to be there and everything that they did for everybody who was going to be departing. You know, but for me, I was like, man, I got, I, I just felt like I had so much more football that I was going to be playing, especially the way the season was going for me at that point. I was like, they changed the offense and everything. They finally started giving me the ball like the last three or four games of my career. And I went on the tear. And so it, it was crazy because I was emotionally connected to the moment, but at the same time, I was like, wow, it didn't hit me like the, the guys who knew that this was actually over, especially if you were a starter, you know, it's like they've been playing football, you know, at that point in time, you know, guys have been playing football since they were six or seven years old. You know, you may have a lot of guys now who don't start playing tackle football until they're you know, in late junior high school or high school, you know, but when I came up, you started from the dirt, you know, you started at six or seven years old and you kind of played your whole way through. So it's, you know, I, yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a lot, you know, and I was just like, it it dawned on me that it didn't hit me like that because I knew I was going to continue playing football. I felt very strong that I was going to, you know. Well, Jamal, you're you're actually now in the business of trying to provide more opportunities for for guys yeah. to play football after college. You're the commissioner of a new football league called the Independent Professional Football League, the IPFL. Right. Uh, right. And I understand there are several, you know, other former NFL players who are part of this league. Tell us about that. Yeah, so we're doing um, we're launching in 32 territories a new football league that um, we call them bearings. Our Ex, uh, ex NFL legends are the owners of each franchise in every market, and there are multiple franchises. Uh, we're, what we're doing is going to be revolutionary. We're playing pop Warner kids all the way up through high school and giving them an opportunity. Uh, and then on the professional level, for guys who may not be able to make it to some of the professional leagues or to the NFL or XFL or whatever, we still want to give them an opportunity to play the sport that they love and be able to provide for them in some financial way. 
So it's very ambitious, but we're very excited. We just had our uh, inaugural our, our inauguration, our inaugural launch party at the College Football Hall of Fame. It went off fantastically. So I'm thrilled about that. And my son was there, and I'm thrilled about him. He's gonna be. I'm looking at this orange helmet behind you. This whole interview, I've been thinking about Clemson. My son is going there. So, well, congratulations <laughs> on that. That's gonna be a whole new yeah. perspective for you watching your son play, and then he he'll obviously be going to bowl games too. Yeah, you know it's crazy. He it's funny because I'm a uh, you know I went through the whole process where you get recruited, and he we went to we went to Clemson. We went to then he came to right. We went to Utah the next weekend. And he knocked on my door, like the night before we left. And he said, Dad, you know, I don't think I want to take any more trips. I'm going to decide between Utah and Clemson. And I'm like, oh, oh, what? You know, and me, of course, I mean, obviously, I went to Utah. So I was thrilled that it was a finalist. But I also was like, you got USC, you got Texas, you got Michigan State, ah, Florida. You know, I'm thinking, like, go see these other schools. But he was, you know, he grew up around Utah's program and he's been – Ever since he was uh, moved to linebacker and he was, our defense has kind of mirrored a lot about some of the things that Clemson was doing. So he started watching film on them when he was like in eighth grade. And so he, that was like, he was like, these are the two I'm going to choose. And I was like, hey, it's your choice, it's your decision. I thought he handled the recruiting process uh, tremendously well. And I'm thrilled for him. I'm excited for him. I, obviously, I would have loved to see him in Salt Lake, but hey, we love the program and I'm excited for him to be down at Clemson and I love his defensive coordinator and coaching staff down there. And obviously Dabo is a, a tremendous, tremendous coach. So they got, they got a lot of good stuff going on there. And, you know, he's a, he's from Georgia, so he'd be close to home. That's great for him. Well, he's, he's, he's fortunate to have had you to guide him through that process. It, it can that. be, it can be tricky. Uh, yeah. la last question for you. Uh, we like to refer to bowl season as a celebration of college football. And you know, a yeah. thing or two about celebrating. Uh, right. I told you we were going to get to this. The dirty bird celebration was pretty popular yeah. back in, in, in your day. I'm, I'm, I'm showing, you know, our age, you know, I, I remember that vividly. Oh. It was, how did that come about? And, and do people still talk to you about that today? Listen, just what we not even last week. Uh, uh, D. Alford, the Falcons' cornerback, he uh, got an interception that sealed the victory versus the the Cleveland Browns, and they ran to the end zone. And half the defense was doing the dirty bird, and they did it as well as me. So you know the Falcons, they they're hashtag dirty birds. So it's a it's a thing that's it's crazy because I saw it for so many times when. You know, if somebody would play against the Falcons and they, they weren't, you know, it was like Matt Ryan's team, they're very kind of blue collar. Not, we don't celebrate Julio Jones. And, and Julio did it once or twice. But then, you know, you'd see it so frequently because when an opponent thought they made a big play against the Falcons, they would do my dance. And I'm like, every other year, every year, I'm like, oh, gosh. So it's cool to see the Falcons doing it. It's weird. It's crazy, too, because. It's literally something that started originally at Utah. A lot of us on the football team were obsessed, we were obsessed with polos. So we used to wear polos around campus and everybody would be at Dillard's or, or, or Bullock's or whatever. When the new polos came out, we had to have them. So we started calling ourselves the polo crew. So we'd be like, that. we would make this as an L, the polo. So I'm literally, <coughs> excuse me, I'm literally in New York and we're about to play the Giants. And we're rolling in 98 and we're playing on national TV. 
And we were all out to dinner in the city. And I was like, we got to do something. Like the Falcons, we have a history of celebrating. We got Dion, we got Billy White Shoes Johnson. Both of those guys are obviously outstanding players, but they're known for their celebration. And we had started calling ourselves the Dirty Birds like early in the season. Okay. So we just, Dirty Birds, yeah, yeah. So I got, we got to do something. And I was like thinking about it. And I was like, uh, I was like, man, we used to do this thing. I literally said this speech. We used to do this when I was at Utah. This is kind of like <clears throat> forming a bird. I was like, this is like a wing. So if I pull this out and I'm like, and we start doing this, I was like, oh, wait a minute. I got something. I was like, oh, yeah. Oh, baby, this is a dirty bird. And I just started doing it and I started rolling with it. And then um, it was a week later, I scored against the Saints. I actually didn't score against the Giants. I did have 100 yards, but I didn't score. And the, we got late in the game. And I got a nice run, and I jumped up, and I just did it real quick. But nobody really celebrated. The next week against the Saints, I broke around the t- I broke around for uh, for a long touchdown. I dove in the end zone, and I remember the referee. It was like one of those in the corners. Like, did he push me out? And I looked at the referee. As soon as I I started jumping up and down, but the one that everybody knows didn't happen until like a week later. We played the 49ers, and it was the game of the week. Everybody was there. I scored, big touchdown, boom, dropped my shoulder on Merton Hanks. I saw the red camera in the end zone, and I started rocking. And that's when it locked into America. I started rocking. I remember, I, now, the, you, you saw the other versions. I was kind of just jumping up and down. I started rocking because I saw the camera, and I knew Madness Summer I would go into commercial break, and I was like, we got to dance this out. And I started stepping and everything. <clears throat> that's when I incorporated Dion Tyson. And that's where the whole dance came from that everybody knows. So the famous Dirty Bird was inspired by this preppy sounding polo crew from Utah. I'm telling you, we should make the L like this, literally that low, that low. And I was like, this is kind of like, yo, this would be like the bird wing. And I was like, ooh, kind of, you know what I mean? Literally where it came from. That, that might be our best story of the season to Jamal. I'm telling thank you, you for that. <laughs> I appreciate it. Well, we've taken up enough of your time. Thanks so much for joining us, Jamal. You, you're a pleasure to talk to. Good luck with Thank all you. your, your new endeavors, and good luck to your son as well. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Take care. We're going to take another short break and be right back with AutoZone Liberty Bowl Executive Director Steve Earhart. Stay tuned. The forecast for this tax season? It's going to rain refunds. Lots of refunds. File for less and get more with TaxAct, the official tax filing software of bowl season. Go to taxact.com to get started today. Welcome back to the show. Our final guest is brought to you by Tappet. Understand how going cashless builds loyalty, engages fans, and boosts your bottom line. We now welcome to the show the executive director of the AutoZone Liberty Bowl and a good friend of mine, Steve Earhart. Steve, thanks so much for joining us. I'm glad to be here with you. And the, the bowls are so important to our national uh, scene. I'm happy to be here with you. And Nick, you as our leader doing a great job. So thanks for having me. Steve, you, you've had a very interesting career. Your, your football resume is quite impressive. Let's talk about that for a minute. You've been, you've been involved in football your entire life. Uh, you began in Colorado as a law student, then a football coach for the Buffaloes, a sports lawyer for the NFL and NBA players. Then, uh, then went on to the USFL as an executive director and a GM. All of this before joining the AutoZone Liberty Bowl 29 years ago. Tell us about your career leading up to your job at the Liberty Bowl. Well, Nick, that's a nice way of saying I'm old, but I, I appreciate that and take that uh, as a compliment. But no, when I was playing collegiately, 
I wanted to be a coach, but uh, I was lucky enough and blessed enough to receive one of these NCA postgraduate scholarships that you had to use right away or give them up. Some of the guys, there was a few guys that won it that year that went in the pros. I was never good enough. So I was able to work that with the University of Colorado, take my law classes in the morning and, and be out coaching in the afternoon. And then uh, I did that for about six years. And that led me into, after I finished my law degree, to representing players in both the NFL and the NBA. And, uh, you know, I enjoyed that. I was one of the few early guys. Now there, everybody walking around is supposedly a sports agent, but I, I was a, a sports lawyer, I would call it that way. And then, uh, then after that period of time, went to New York, helped start the USFL. There was a number of really great coaches. There was the George Allen's, the Red Miller's, the John Ralston's of those kind of coaches that we put together the USFL and stayed up there for a couple of years as executive director of the USFL. And, uh, and then uh, uh, the owner of then owner of the Memphis showboats. Uh, and we had Reggie white and a lot of great players had me come down. I was president and part owner of the Memphis showboats in the USFL. But unfortunately with uh, you know, we got into that lawsuit, Donald Trump, who at that time, you know, well, uh, owned the New Jersey generals and we got into that uh, long lawsuit. And so anyway, the USFL, we ended up uh, in that trial and then uh, had to close down shop for, for a while. Now there's a USFL that's back on the steps again, using our names and logos and colors. But uh, so that's kind of there. And then, then I had a life in uh you know, baseball for a while. I started the Colorado Rockies, uh, was president of the Colorado Rockies, organized that ownership, but I really uh, loved uh, college football. So I sold my stock in the, in the major league baseball and came back to be, uh, you know, the executive director of the AutoZone Liberty Bowl. They're great camaraderie, as you know, Nick, with uh, the coaches and the players and the university component uh, has been important to me. So in the last 29 years here in Memphis is the executive director of the AutoZone Liberty Bowl. Well, I, I know you have uh, a lot of great stories along the way and all those. Uh, there's been documentaries about the USFL that you've been in and the Memphis showboats of the USFL is what brought you to West Tennessee. Tell us about what the Tennessee, com uh, the, the Memphis community has meant to you over the years, personally and professionally. Well, it's really been a great area. It's a we call the Mid-South. A lot of people think, well, it's a Southern tip. It's Mid-South, right on the border of Tennessee, Arkansas, and Mississippi. And my home is right a couple of miles from each of the three states. So uh, in the Mid-South, and, and there's a lot of great people here. I know some people, you know, everybody's got their regionalism. But uh, so we have teams like Arkansas and Tennessee and Ole Miss and Mississippi State, Kentucky, all right here. Uh, big SEC, the University of Memphis uh, is right here. They're, they're in a coming program in the, in the American Athletic Conference. Uh, I think when you were running the Big East, uh, you, you had some contact here with, with Memphis. And so uh, it's, it's been a pleasure to be here. My kids had great schooling here. And uh, so we've enjoyed being here. And I do one thing, when I left New York to come down here, as you know, sometimes in New York, it's uh, you cut a deal, shake hands, and then how fast can you change the terms down here? The Mid-South, you shake your hand, and there's a little bit of that great, uh, you know, uh, camaraderie here. So I've enjoyed being here in Memphis for the, the last 29, although I was back and forth to Denver when I was president of the Rockies. Now, there are a lot of bowl games now. There's there's 42 of them. They all do great work in their community, but uh, there wasn't always that many. The, the AutoZone Liberty Bowl is the seventh oldest college bowl game. And this is the 64th continuous uninterrupted year of the game. That's pretty special. How valuable is that tradition and the longtime familiarity to the people of greater Memphis? 
It's it's really important. One of the longest running great institutions in Memphis and people here in Memphis treat it that way. You know, it's an important, compelling event for Memphis. And we have a lot of events around it. We have a rodeo, pro rodeo, we have parades, we have galas. Uh, you know, we have a lot of events associated. In fact, our formal name is the AutoZone Liberty Bowl Festival Association. So it's important for the community and to put Memphis uh, as a showcase uh, to the rest of the country. And the people in, in Memphis are very supportive of the bowl. And I hope that the message gets out to people around the country. Some people take shots at bowls, but one reason I'm here is because the, the great, you know, attitude and excitement about not only the players who are part of this, but the band members. There's, I always say there's more band members and cheerleader people that are coming to the games, and this is their chance to celebrate and have that great camaraderie. So I hope that people will look at that when they're looking at the value of the bowls. It's very important to our community and important to all the universities. I think we've had 60-some uh, different universities uh, play here, and they all go home with a, a, a great memory of the game and great celebration. We get, uh, I think, one of your guys that you remember, Donovan McNabb, when he played here uh, in Syracuse in the game and 10 years later his mother called and said boy Donovan really buys he's making millions in the NFL but he wanted his AutoZone Liberty Bowl watch you know he had lost the watch and so it's very important to that constituency and so I hope we continue to emphasize how important it is for the universities and their entire constituency. That, that certainly is the case and, and, and you do so much in your community uh, as well you touched on it a little bit the I know the Liberty Bulls established a very successful high school all-star game, which is helping nearly 40 young student athletes obtain college scholarships every year. So meaningful. Tell us more about that. Yeah, that's right. About 20 years. In fact, this is our 20th year of doing this. We wanted to figure out a way to help promote the high school athletics, high school football, you know, recognize and promote the coaches who work so hard and give the many, many hours to their student athletes. So we organized a an all-star game every year. And we, we limited it to just the Memphis Metro area. There's, I think, 56 different high schools here. We didn't want to reach across to other States and get the very best players. Those, those top, as I say, the top guns, they're always going to get a college scholarship. It's the, the guys from the smaller schools that don't have a chance to be recognized or don't be seen. So we invite college coaches to come to the week of practices and then to come to the game and get a chance to see, you know, the players that are generally overlooked. And so it's really been gratifying that over the years, as you mentioned, over 40, 40 young men a year, uh, student athletes that get a chance to go on to college. And before we started the game, there were only 10 or 12. And as I say, those were the, the hot shots that everybody knew about. It's a young guys. There's a couple of stories of, you know, just recently, uh, Anthony Miller, young guy who had no college offers and I finally talked to call the coach and said hey this guy's catching everything in sight in our practices and he's a good tough young kid and he ended up being a walk-on and all-american Anthony Miller he's he's now playing for the Steelers so there's so many stories like that over the years and recognize the coaches we just finished our big luncheon today where we were recognizing the high school coaches and and keeping them rewarded it's much like the uh, college football playoff uh, recognition of teachers. We're doing it of, of high school coaching teachers. So uh, it's a very important mission. It certainly is. And 
the St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital is a mainstay in Memphis and a valuable friend of the Liberty Bowl. Tell us about that longtime friendship and what opportunities lie between yeah. those two organizations. Thanks for asking. In fact, on my collar here, I'm wearing my, my St. Jude pin here that's so recognizable around the country. And St. Jude Children's Hospital is a, is a wonderful institution. Uh, I got exposed to it when I was first here. And Danny Thomas, who the, your viewers may recognize, who was the founder of St. Jude Children's Hospital, he got me involved. And a lot of people don't realize that Danny owned a little percentage of the Miami Dolphins, he and Sammy Davis Jr. and stuff. And this is, goes way back, but he loved football. And so he partnered up with, with the AutoZone Liberty Bowl years ago. So everything we do is emphasizes uh, St. Jude. We raise money for them, raise awareness. And on game day, uh, you know, we have uh, uh, young St. Jude patients singing the national anthem at the game. And so it's really an important opportunity to platform St. Jude to the rest of the country. Not St. Jude is run, but one thing for all your viewers is if you find a child that's got ill with the cancer, just send them straight to St. Jude because they have the cutting edge research and treatments and you don't pay a thing for anything, whether it's the family staying on the campus and, and we have an ongoing program with them to have teachers there going back, working with the college football playoff to, because the families bring their siblings there and the patient can be sometimes there for a year or two in treatment. And so it's a wonderful institution. So if I can reach this one, one family, you know, for getting the very best cancer treatment for pediatric cancers, it's St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. Good stuff. It's really good stuff. So, well, tradition and college football are synonymous, and that's the case with your bowl game as well. Every AutoZone Liberty Bowl since 1965 has been held at Liberty Bowl Memorial Stadium in Memphis. Does the stadium add to the longtime tradition of the bowl game and give it kind of a home feel having been around for so long? Yeah, and I've, I've been in that stadium, whether it was with the Memphis Showboats, there was an XFL team here and a Canadian Football League team here and uh, Liberty Bowl Stadium. It's now got a new name, Simmons Bank Liberty Stadium. Uh, that's the rage today is have uh, sponsor names on the stadiums, but it's a great place to watch uh, uh, football from. I don't know if you can see the wall behind me in my office here. There's there's no track running around the stadium. The year is very close to the field. People can see it well. And, you know, it's it's an older stadium, but we got new sky boxes and, and brand new field this year. So it's it's been, you know, a gathering place for Memphians, as you say, for uh, 50 some years ago. The, the AutoZone Liberty Bowl was founded in Philadelphia. You know, Bud Dudley founded it, uh, you know, 60 some years ago. And that's why we have the name Liberty and our, our trophy is an exact replica of the original Liberty Bell with all the colonial writing on it. And it works. And the, the winning team takes that home for their trophy case every year. So it's a big part of what we do, the tradition and history of the of the stadium. You know, I, it, it just kind of came into my, my mind, Steve, the Seems like years ago when there was only a few bowl games that most of the bowl games were named after the stadium they played in. And then those stadiums have either changed or gone away. I think you're one of only two that that's still the case, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that's a great point. Actually, the the stadium was named after our association when Bud Dudley was moving the Liberty Bowl from Philadelphia. And I think was it 1963 or 64. Uh, so the stadium had just been completed and an original name was Memorial Stadium. And so of people in Memphis, Bud Dudley was going to go on a tour of all the cities that didn't have bowls. And he stopped here and the, the people in Memphis were so inviting to him. He canceled all his trips to places like Tampa and Phoenix who didn't have bowls in that days. And so he said, Hey, look, we'll even name the stadium after your Liberty Bowl Association. So that's why the, the name Liberty, which came out of Philadelphia, 
is not only on our association, but is on the stadium as well. That's a great point, Nick. Oh, what an interesting note in history we just pulled out there. I, I, I'm glad I asked that question. Uh, la last thing for you, Steve, I want to congratulate you. I understand on October 20th, you're going to be inducted into the Memphis, Memphis Sports Hall of Fame. That's quite an honor. I would ask that, uh, that organization what took them so long. But uh, either way, uh, you must be very proud of that. Yes, I am. And again, another way of saying I'm old. I mean, but uh, <laughs> no, I'm going to continue to doing this for years and years. And I, I love the camaraderie with the relationship with the coaches and the players and people like yourself running and doing great things for the sport of football. And there's without getting too, uh, you know, sentimental, there's so many great things. I know you you express it so articulately about, you know, what it teaches young men and, you know, the, the value of competition and coaching and accountability and all those great things. So, you know, I appreciate the the shout out and I'm very honored to be going in. There's some great, great Memphians in the Hall of Fame guys like Tim McCarver and, uh, you know, uh, some of the, some of these great, you know, people that have been from Memphis. I, I guess I've been here for nearly 40 years now. So I'm just honored and proud that they would vote to induct me into the Memphis Hall of Fame. Well, Steve, you've been very generous of your time. Um, thank you so much. Uh, you know, you and I have known each other a long time. You've always been a, a great resource for me personally. You're so knowledgeable in the world of college football. And uh, I've, I've been privileged to know you for all these years. Thanks. Thanks for all you've done for, for me, for the game of college football in general. And thanks for joining us today on the podcast. Well, I appreciate and appreciate your leadership of the whole season. And again, getting the message out, I think to the, it's not just what one media guy says that there's too many balls. They, they should go and look at the, the look in the eyes of the band members and the players and the coaches and the constituency when they, they have a chance to go celebrate a bowl trip. So very important for the development of these young men. No doubt about it. Well, thanks to all of you for listening to this week's Bowl Season Stories podcast. Please join us next week when we will welcome another lineup of great guests. If you like the show, we'd appreciate you dropping a five-star rating for the podcast. And as always, you can follow all the podcast and Bowl Season news on our website, bowlseason.com, and on social media at Bowl Season. Thanks for listening.